may your individual, personal contemplation of what Jesus did for you during this Lenten season lead you to not only be filled with sorrow over against your sin, but with profound joy and appreciation for exactly the magnitude of what Jesus did for you. How he took away your sins and gave you instead life eternal in his name. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, I wonder how many of you have ever experienced being in the minority. I mean, in a place where you are obviously the outsider. It could happen in a number of different ways, of course, but maybe just based on your skin color, have you ever been in a place where you stand out as different? And that difference you're reminded of with either darting glances or full-on stare. It's an interesting phenomenon if you've never experienced it. And if you've never experienced it, I wonder if all of us will not soon experience it. Sooner, perhaps, than we would even imagine. Now, I'm not talking about going to a foreign land or being in a place where our skin is a different color. I'm not talking about ethnicity or any such thing. I'm talking about morality. Simple Christian morality. You see, as, as this world continues to deteriorate and as we apparently see so few that are truly Christian anymore who act like it, and you continue to walk that path that God has designated for you, you will increasingly stand out as different, as odd. You don't have to try. This isn't something that we, that we try to bring on ourselves. This is something that we really don't have an option to change. As the world deteriorates, as, a, as our society gets weirder and weirder, crazier and crazier, we don't have the option of blending in. What that means is God has outlined a path for us. In his word, he's given us direction on what our lives should look like. And if we just follow that path, we will stand out as all the more different, all the more unusual, all the more odd. That's not a good thing. I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's a good and necessary thing. Understand then that Jesus here warned us, first of all, ahead of time of this, didn't he? When he gave us that, that simple command, let your light so shine. And then in another place, you will have trouble in the world or hardship. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So those two things, let your light shine, and obviously that's going to result in hardship, but that's our path. This morning our text will instruct us in this, this being different. And it will instruct us in a most unique way, which is the basis of that rather odd title, Different by Association. 
text that will guide us in this is from the Old Testament book of Exodus, the 33rd chapter, beginning with the 12th verse. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, that is the Lord, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is God's word, fully confident that these are, in fact, the very words of our God and trusting his power, working through this word in us this morning, we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Differences on the inside will in one way or another, always find a way to manifest themselves on the outside. But this is going to happen in ways you're not always going to recognize. You may, you may be in a situation where you're different and you hear or you see things that are different and you just don't participate in that. And you wonder if anybody notices. They do. They may not always share that with you, but sooner or later they come to notice that something is different there, something's different about you. And that's exactly the idea that God puts into action when he says, let your light shine. Don't be afraid to be different, that they may see your good works and glorify your heavenly Father, your Father, my Father who is in you. Anything else, by the way, anything other than allowing what's on the inside to manifest itself on the outside. In other words, we just simply live our Christian life in harmony with God's word and will. Anything else is either hypocritical and or loveless, even sinful. It just stands to reason, obviously, if you are 
if you're acting differently than you are, that's the definition of being hypocritical. But it's also loveless in that not allowing that light to shine, not allowing or hiding or compromising or pretending you're something you're not to fit in is loveless because that's what the world needs to see. They need that witness. They need to know that there's something other than what the rest of the world is trying to convince them is out there. Now you know that in a, in a way because you, you in your life, I'm sure have very few people that agree with what happens way to the east. Farther even than Fargo. Way to the east. The things that you hear and see there are like, I don't know anybody that thinks like that or does that or acts like that. That's just weird. Yeah, well, in their circles it's not so weird, evidently. And they want everybody to be the same, which is their solution to the guilt that they are always feeling. Then I'll just feel better about myself if there's no other option. This is how people are. It's loveless to withhold from them this other way. So if everybody's using bad language and you don't, that's a loving thing. But again, we don't have the option. We don't recognize that we have an option to do this or not because God didn't give us an option. Walk as I taught you to walk. Let your light shine. And that doesn't mean that you, again, stand on the corner with shaking a Bible at people and yelling at them. It just means walk in humble obedience to your Lord. And that will make a difference. It'll make a greater difference. It'll be a greater contrast the more darkness prevails in this world. That light will seem ever brighter. Think of a flashlight when it's, when it's daytime out and you shine it and you can see a little bit of light and it's blindingly bright in the dark. Moses got all of this. This is how we, it relates to our text. Look again at the dialogue between the Lord and Moses in our text. It's striking. These things take place after God's miraculous ten plagues, uh, deliverance of Israel from 430 years of bondage in Egypt. Moses didn't even want to continue on to the promised land, to the land God promised to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't even want to go on unless one thing happened. Unless you go with me. Unless, more than that, you are continually at my side. This is just such a great attitude in so many different ways. It our tendency, our natural old Adam tendency, is to kind of imagine that we're going to go the way we want to go and then every once in a while when we get in trouble, we'll grab God and say, hey, I need some help here. But Moses didn't even want to take one step. He didn't want to go any further. I don't even want to go on here, Lord, unless you promise not just to occasionally visit, but to be with me always. I want to be right here with you every step of the way. He wanted no future at all, in other words, without the Lord at his side continually. His first request was simple. 
Show me what to do so that I can always know that I am doing the right thing, the thing that pleases you alone. Again, what a great example. And it's an example of why the Bible also listed Moses as one of the most humble people ever. This is abject humility. The opposite of humility is humanism. Humanism believes man calls the shots. Man is the measure of all things, is their mantra. So man gets to decide what's right and wrong. It's a very arrogant attitude, especially over against God. True humility says, I don't want to do anything, Lord, until you tell me it's okay, or until you direct me to do it. I want to avoid everything. So the first thing Moses wanted from his Lord is, you show me what's right and wrong. You tell me. And only then will I have confidence to move on. Moses was just getting started in this because he went on. All right, not only show me right and wrong so that I know I'm always doing what is pleasing to you, he continues, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Don't miss the depth and the ramifications of what Moses is saying here. Not only was he unafraid of being different from the world, that's exactly the thing that he wanted. They use the word distinct. He did. I want the people to know that we're distinct, and the only way is with you, with me, continually. My association with you is a thing that will create, cause, make known this distinction that I crave. Not only did he refuse to hide his association with God, he wanted that obvious to the rest of the world, to everyone that saw him. It wasn't just, it's you and me, God, okay? He wanted him obviously there. In fact, again, he didn't even want to go on if that presence of God wouldn't be his continually. It's also interesting here, and we've been talking about this in other venues, but it's interesting here that, that Moses demanded this of God. And we're always reluctant to demand things of God because we think it's contrary to Christian humility and yet it's actually when you think about it an aspect of Christian humility because when we demand something from God it's only because he's promised it it's only because we in humility take him at his word and trust his promise and God wants us to do that if he's promised it's pleasing to him that we demand what he's promised. In other words, it's not, I'm worthy, God, you have to give this to me, but I trust your promise, Lord, and you promise this. Malachi, the prophet that wrote the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi was, at the time, was faced with a problem that the children of Israel were told to rebuild uh, the temple and they suspended that to build their own homes and to take care of their own well-being. 
to put the best construction on it, they thought, well, I can't give to the Lord unless I first settle myself. That's the best construction. But listen to what God said to them. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Put me to the test, God says. I've promised. Do it and find out. So again, this, this, this imperative, this, this use of, of wording here by Moses where he demands something from God is in perfect harmony with humility that simply clings to God's promise and holds him to it. God is not offended by that. This phenomenon, this particular phenomenon, is no more evident or more important than in connection with the forgiveness of sins. Think about our need to hold God to his word here and thereby gain the comfort that our God wants us to have. Now, most of you are you're all probably familiar with that section in 1 John 1, where he outlines two scenarios. We use it sometimes in our order of service, and we use it sometimes uh, typically in, in private communion, for example. And it is this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What John did there is he established two possible scenarios. The one, if we deny our sin, which is another way to speak of unbelief. Unbelievers deny their sin. It's the way the world, of course, tries to deal with their sin and guilt, to deny it. If I can just convince myself that what I'm doing is not wrong, but at least for me, in my case, it's, it's right and acceptable, then I can get rid of the guilt. It doesn't work at all. It just suppresses that guilt and it eats away at them, which again is why uh, those folks tend to be so angry all the time, so bitter. So that's the one scenario. But the other that John outlined is if we confess our sins, in other words, if we acknowledge our sin and inherent encapsulated in that is also a repentance that goes with it for a Christian. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, God has obligated himself. He can't do otherwise. That's why we can hold God to his word, and he wants us to. To hold him to that word, which is that, that profound sense of comfort. I repent of my sin. My God has obligated himself. He can do no other than forgive my sin, than, than to cleanse me from all unrighteousness in his sight. This is not arrogance. This is humility before God who absolutely clings to his promise, his word. When we hold God to his promise, when, in a manner of speaking, we demand of him that he keep his word and promise to us, we do so obviously not imagining that we are worthy of anything. 
of course. There's always that sinful old Adam that, that tries to creep in with that nonsense. We beat that element of ourselves into submission. But we don't want to rob ourselves of this God-given confidence that our God wants to be ours. That God cannot do otherwise than that by which he has obligated himself. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He cannot do otherwise. Do you believe? Have you been baptized? And again, it's the belief that's emphasized there. But the confidence you can have is you will be saved. Nothing in heaven and earth can take that away from us. God has said this sin that man committed has been paid for. It can't be brought as evidence against you. It can't condemn you any longer because I have been condemned for it. I paid for it. It, it has no place on Judgment Day. What then, God asks, God, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, what can condemn us? Who? What? can be our accuser or what can condemn us on God's day of judgment then. When we cling to this, this promise of our God that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What can condemn us? Nothing. The devil has no evidence against us because all of his evidence is gone, carried to the cross by Jesus. Jesus, he won't condemn us. He's the one who came to save us. God the Father, he declared us not guilty by raising Jesus from the dead. He was raised again for our justification, meaning this is God's seal, testament, assurance that your sin debt has been paid. I have declared you innocent, not guilty. That's my proof. The tomb is empty. My son is raised. It's like the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery and all these, those men wanted to stone them, those hypocritical men, some of whom probably had visited her. And she's terrified because all these accusers are there. And then Jesus, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And we're that woman. In that poignant moment when she looks up and there's nobody there except Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. All of our accusers, all of our sins, the devil and his minions, all gone. That's God's promise. And it's not sinful. It's good to hold him to that. Now, all of this has to do with this, this association, different by association, because as Moses didn't even want to go on except that he walked side by side with his God, that's the same thing you and I want. So right now, we have this faith, and now the rest of our time of grace stretches out in front of us. We have that terrible power because the devil prowls around trying to devour us. We have that terrible power to throw that away. And God's solution is to keep him at our side always. To have that same resolution as 
Moses, I don't want to go anywhere unless you're right here with me. And he promised he would be, and he visits us through his word, and that's how we keep him right with us. I don't want to take another step unless I know it's in harmony with your will. And then the Bible also tells us about how bad company corrupts good morals. Do you know that to be true? Anybody here want to question that wisdom? I bet every single one of you in your life has had times where you recognized that your walk was drifting from your Lord because you were walking too closely with somebody else. Their language, their actions, their clothing, pick something. You found yourselves walking not right next to your Lord, having him direct your steps, what you say, think, do all things, but you wandered off and you're following something that is less than wholesome. What do you do about it? There are certain questions that answer themselves. Disassociate with yourself with them as much as possible. Stop being one of them. Stop the lovelessness whereby you seek to, or you listen to that old Adam in you that seeks to hide who and what you are. And simply walk in harmony with this Lord, arm in arm with your Savior, trusting that where he leads is a good place to go. Where he directs cannot be wrong. And then that, that lovelessness of hiding is gone. We don't have to seek out the confrontation. We don't have to try to be different. We will be. And that difference again will be ever more apparent as the world slides into ridiculous levels of degradation, immorality, nonsense your actions will stand out all the more. So, which of the two, since we have these two voices in us, that old Adam that longs to hide and go with the world, go with the flow, get by, don't let anybody notice me, and that new man that longs to be like Jesus, to walk with your Savior, that isn't afraid of being different, just going where my Savior leads. Which of those wins? Of course, the one that you feed, the one that you encourage. We're so stupid when we feed that old Adam in whatever way. You can identify that in your life all the different ways that you foster, perpetuate, encourage evil or an association with evil. The opposite, of course, is to surround yourself with fellow Christians, to immerse yourself in God's Word. That thing that we talked about more than a week ago about fixing your attention in your minds on what is God-pleasing. If there are things that are pure, holy, just, righteous, all these things imitate what we saw in Moses. 
I don't want to venture out unless I'm with you, Lord, unless you guide. I don't have the strength or the confidence unless you're with me. But I want everybody to know that I'm with you. So we pray finally that God would give us that spirit of Moses that is not ashamed of our association with our God. He is our life. He is what we are about. He is our hope and consolation. And that he would also give us the spirit of Moses that we're not ashamed of, but willing to and eager to share that, to have that be known to those around us in that very humble, loving way so that we might share with them. They seeing that we're different and us telling them, you know what, we're really not. We're miserable sinners whose sin debt has been paid. We'd love, I'd love to be able to walk arm in arm with you too as a child of God. And it can be yours. It is yours through faith in Jesus. The promise is yours too. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God give us such a spirit. Amen.